Lord, we agree with those prayers and certainly know that we can't see beyond this moment and we know that you have a grand plan and we submit all of these things and our prayers to that plan, whatever your will may be. We have our desires as was prayed and we've lifted them up and if they fit with your will, we would rejoice and if not, we would still rejoice. So we do praise you and look to you today as we get into your word and we desire to be grounded in it and to be reminded of these things because we face the issue of sin every day and this passage encourages us to deal with it in the way that you've specified. So we just commit our time and ask that you would be glorified this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This last trip to Houston Chafer Conference, I thought it was a Good conference, renewed contacts with people, and had an interesting experience on the way. Picked up, he's actually a Chafer student, and had an interesting conversation. And the reason I bring it up is he's a good illustration of the passage that we're looking at. He served time in prison. He said he became a believer as a young man, but hung out with the wrong crowd, ended up in prison. And it was in that experience that God basically turned his life totally around, such that he has even an online seminary that he calls. And what he does is primarily tutor people that are struggling in their theological studies and primarily people that are involved in even seminary studies. So while in prison... In fact, I was very impressed with just what he had done. He had done a lot of reading in a lot of good areas, and it was interesting how God just kind of guided him to the right places because he starts off, I don't remember exactly, theologically off base, basically, and God kind of just stepped him and stepped him and stepped him until he eventually came to a a very biblical stance in terms of things. So lots of reading, and then once he got into that, he got into theology, he got in, he's basically teaching my Bible study methods course, hermeneutics and Bible study methods. He teaches that one, teaches other courses. Very interesting, but it's a, an example. He had one identity, that basically of that of any sinner, Even an unbeliever, even though he was born again, he was living in that old identity, ends up in prison. God turns that around, and now he's living in a totally contrastive identity that is different from that past. God is using him in a mighty way, and he's a student, and really he should make it through Chafer fairly easily, in fact, I told him that I would talk to the right people, hopefully, and may put him on a fast track to get a THM, because he's he's basically mastered most of the courses already. So it's just a matter of people recognizing that. But the point I'm making here is the key to understanding Romans 6 is that Paul lays out not a bunch of do's and don'ts, not this is the key to Christian living, in other words, five steps, or not just putting in your effort to do what God calls for, in other words, self-effort. He'll deal with that in chapter 7. 
But he lays out in chapter six who we are in a new identity, and in that new identity, there is a new lifestyle that corresponds to it. So the issue of Christianity is more basically our perspective on on who we are, based on Romans six. Are we still who we were in the past? That's where. This fellow was living and where a lot of believers go back to. Or are we living with this new identity? I tried to illustrate it. Jacob's not here, but using Jacob as an example and kind of an imaginary scenario where that new identity calls for different lifestyle, different things that you do. So that's the essence of the passage. And by the way, back to uh, kind of the beginning here. Before Paul gets to, okay, what do you do now? Now that I have these facts, now that I know about this new identity, how do I respond to it? So we could call verses 11 through 14, and even though we'll start a little bit before that because I didn't complete what we started last time, basically you don't have an exhortation In the book of Romans, until you get to verse 11, that's the first imperative, you might say, the first command. The first thing that Paul encourages us to do, if you will, even though the first one is not doing, but he gives four imperatives in those passages. In fact, I'll let you identify them, and when we get there, we'll identify them together. But the first one is in verse 11. So we have to have knowledge, biblical knowledge, biblical understanding. And in that understanding, we understand that we are a new creature in Christ. What does that mean and the significance of that? So he lays all these facts and he repeats the concept of knowing in there. That's probably the main theme in verses 1 through 10. And he's dealing with, obviously, the church at Rome Believers that face the same struggles in terms of the battle with sin as we do today, and because it's inspired, it's applicable to us as well. So we're looking at the principles of sanctification, all of chapter 6. The main principles surround the concept of this identification with Christ. That's our new identity. We are viewed from God's perspective in Christ. And that means that sin has been broken. We still have a nature. We looked at that, and we'll get to that again. That uh, brings us or gives us the potential of going back to that old identity. But if we can keep in mind this new identity in Christ, our identification with Christ, he explains the doctrine, first ten verses. We've looked at that. In fact, we're going to go back to the last few there. He raises the issue, verses 1 and 2, of living this new life. And the essence of it is this union or uniting with Christ, verses 3 through 4. And he explains or further elaborates that uniting with Christ, 5 through 10, and that's where we're at right now. We looked at 5 through 7, dealing with the issue of crucifixion in Christ. We have died with him. It's as if we were on the cross with him. And in that, that gives us the new identity. So the issue of being dead to sin, in other words, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound, may it never be, 
because we have died to it. That's the answer to the question he asks. Verse 3, the principle, this uniting with Christ in his death, the significance of that, if we're united in his death, the significance is that we are also united in his resurrection, where there's resurrection power. So therefore, beginning verse 4 and 5 through 10, for if that is true, we introduces it, if this uniting with his resurrection is true, then this co-crucifixion and co-resurrection has implications and other details that he explains beginning in verse 5 through 10. Our chart way of looking at the passage, and that's kind of where we're at. So let's finish what we started, 5 through 7. And in that, we already looked at some of it, most of it, actually. So let me just kind of review it. But it's one sentence, so we broke it down. Starts with a conditional sentence. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, here's the independent clause, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So the idea of this uniting in Christ's resurrection. Then what we stressed last time, knowing this, that our old self, that old identity, that old person, who we were before regeneration, before we became believers, that's kind of the composite of everything that we were. I made the distinction because I think Paul is making the distinction here that our old self was crucified with him. In other words, there's been a break from that old life, that old person. And there's two words in the Greek text. The word for old, with the idea of something worn out, useless, no longer effective. And then self is actually the word for man, anthropos. The old man, the old person, the old identity. And the distinction he's making that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin... New little phrase in there, and I see that specifically relating to what remains within us. So if you want to call it the old nature, the old nature was not, did not die. It's very active. Our old self, our old identity, and all that is encompassed with that, that's what died, but we still remain with this body of sin. And the reason he phrases that is because it comes from our, not only our physical body, but it includes the mind. It's part of our body of sin. We are still fallen. That has not been regenerated yet. That awaits glorification. So I see that distinction. We made that last time. So we defined our terms here. The old self, the old unregenerate life in Adam. All that he talked about in Romans 5, remember beginning in verse 12, the identification with Adam and who we are in him, and he also gives the alternative in chapter 5. So it's the entire composite, and I'll try and illustrate it with a little chart in a moment. And then he makes, I think, a distinction, body of sin, that's that specific aspect of us that remains until we go to be with the Lord, the old Nature is the common way that most people describe it. So we talked about two natures last time. There's this old nature, and biblically, we looked up these passages, it's described in general ways. 
that includes the body of sin, 7.24, we looked at these, I'm not going to look them up again. Natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, body of sin back there, Colossians 2.11 and others. 1 Corinthians 15.44-46, natural man. The flesh, that's probably the most common description, also in Romans, but 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, following that 1 Corinthians 2.14 passage. So the flesh is another descriptive term of the old nature. Indwelling sin, chapter 7, 17 through 18, we'll get to that. In fact, we'll discuss that in more detail when we get to chapter 7, also verse 20. And then there's the new nature that is described, I think, in Ephesians 4, 23 through 24, 1 Corinthians 2, 15, 3 through 1. We looked up most of those two weeks ago when I was still here. So two natures. So we can illustrate it this way, using kind of a circle that encompasses. The circle includes the old man in its entirety. And it's described as anything that we do amounts to like filthy rags. That's from Isaiah. We've been stressing that. It's described as unrighteous. In other words, it has no proper standing, particularly before God. It may be in a good standing in terms of earthly things. It may even appear even holy. Some of the scribes and Pharisees met the requirements of the law, probably not perfectly, but at least acceptably in that culture. And yet Jesus described them as unrighteous. So it can appear religious, but from God's perspective, it's unrighteous. It includes what we describe as the old nature that remains even after regeneration. That's part of the old self. Obviously, it's in sin, dominated by sin. We've been seeing that in this chapter, chapter 6. And we see that it's in bondage. And there's other descriptive terms that we could use as well. One more It has deadness. There's no life there. There's no spiritual life. Even though an individual may be breathing and his heart may be pumping, it's dead. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins, Ephesians 2, 1. So many things encompass this old life. The deadness, obviously we have life in Christ, in the new nature. We're no longer in bondage to that old way of life. This relationship to sin has been broken. The old nature remains. We have the potential for a different way of living. We can live in righteousness. In fact, we are declared righteous. And now the things that we do are no longer filthy rags, but they can have eternal effect. And we can view it as a bank vault full of resources that the new nature gives us. And in fact, Ephesians 1 tells us that we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. That's our new identity. The old identity died on the cross. The new identity has all of these resources. And now Romans chapter 6, the issue is where are we going to exercise our will? Are we going to live in the new or are we going to revert back to the old. And what comes into play is this still remaining something within us. We call it a nature or a inclination, however you want to describe it. So those are the two natures. 
So we could include in here body of sin, flesh, all those other biblical words that we looked at a moment ago. Connie. You think the math it can almost be like a Venn, di- Venn diagram where the middle section is that portion that kind of hangs over into our new identity? Yep. Yep, still hangs over with a hangover, as you can say. <laughs> That's where we left off. 6, 8 through 10. The emphasis is this crucifixion idea, 5 through 7, and he's transitioning more to a resurrection idea, even though both ideas are kind of intermixed in the whole passage. And that's where he's kind of moving us. Because of the resurrection, we have resurrection life, we have resurrection power available. So God has provided all that we need to be able to live the Christian life. But we also have that inclination that we struggle with, that causes us not to live in that new nature. And all I'm doing in this slide here, and I hope it's not too small to read, but there seems to be some parallels in the passage. And when you have a repetition in Scripture, what it's doing, it, it's emphasizing and kind of hitting you from two, two perspectives, giving you similar ideas. So notice both of these portions, 5 through 7, and 8 through 10, both begin with conditional clauses, first-class condition. They're almost identical even, or very similar. For if, verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, notice that, skip to verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, same idea, we believe that we shall also live with him, so there's the idea of death, and at the last part of Verse 5, I should have read further, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then verse 8, that we shall also live with him. See the parallel there? Then in verse 6, it begins with knowing something. In other words, you need to keep before your thinking who you are, what your identity is, knowing this. Knowing that you become united with him in the likeness of his death, knowing that, and also knowing that uh, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, know that, in other words, that is going to influence how you live, and I've given you lots of illustrations, the last one I gave you was that lady standing before the teller, remember that one, the little video I showed you? You guys enjoyed that one, I had to show it twice. Knowing this, and notice the parallel in verse 9, knowing that, see the parallel? Knowing this, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him. 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. So there's death there as well. And then the last part of verse 6, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Last part of 9, death no longer is master over him. See the parallel? And then verse 7, 4, begins with 4, verse 10, 4, kind of a concluding idea, for he who has died is freed from sin or justified from sin, verse 10, for the death that he died, so there's death in both of them, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, and then this freeing idea or justifying idea has a parallel in verse 10, that he lives, he lives to God. So he's reinforcing some of the same things. So we can go through it a little bit more quickly because we've touched on every one of these things already. Okay? In fact, we've read it. 
So he begins with a conditional clause. Now, we have died with Christ at first class. So we have died in Christ. You can translate it. Since we have died with Christ, we believe. This idea, of, in other words, this is settled. We, we trust in it. This is, this is what we, we rest our faith in. We believe that we shall also live with him. It's very important. Now, it is in the future tense, but it's not looking necessarily, it includes it, but it's not limited to a future beyond this life. Certainly, we will live with him into eternity. That's settled as well. But in the context of sanctification, he's looking at it, okay, now I have died with Christ. Now, from here on out into the future, I can live with him or I will live with him. See that? So it's kind of an ongoing living with him the rest of my life in this new identity. Knowing that, and I've been stressing the importance of keeping this mental perspective, the truth, the reality, you don't feel the new birth. You may, some people may have some emotions associated with it because of the the, the sense of forgiveness and the release of bondage. But not all believers that trust in Christ at that moment sense it. It's invisible. And certainly as we begin to live our lives, we don't feel the new birth within us. So it's almost like it may not be there. And as we get distracted and all the pressures of the world begin to crowd in, we begin to forget reality. And we begin to live like the woman before the counter there and act out things that are not really true. Remember the video. She responded, thinking certain things in her mind that were not true, because somebody deceived her, (laughs) and she acted it out. So that's what we do. We think certain things are true. In other words, I'm a sinner. I'm not regenerated. I'm not... Now, you don't verbally think those things, or visually think those things exactly, but that's where our mind goes. We don't think in terms of our new identity. So he says, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over us. So we have knowing, and I've been saying, the stress in the passage is knowing. You don't see it immediately in the English, but he actually uses three different words. Three different words. We've already talked about you, Jacob. <laughs> oh, it's just not robbing banks. <laughs> That's what we thought. <laughs> Again, reminded of you as the illustration in the classroom. And we added another guy, too. A guy that actually was in prison. <laughs> okay, knowing in verse 9. Now, before we get to verse 9, we already looked at verse 3. 6, 3. Do you not know? Kind of the... Alternative, that's how he begins. Do you not know that these things are true? Then he elaborates what we should know. He uses agnoeo, the idea of being ignorant of something or not knowing something. And we saw in verse 6, ginosko, that's the more common word for knowing something. And you can see a lot of usages of that word in this idea of knowing by experience. In other words, you not only have it intellectually, but you have experienced something. And do you not know that this is a real thing that you have experienced? 
this death to sin, this identification with Christ, this baptism into his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a reality that we need to fix in our thinking. Now, in verse 9, we have a different word, oida. Now, sometimes that's used intuitive knowledge or not so experiential, but more knowledge that is more evident, you might say, self-evident truth. And this is self-evident truth because the Bible has proclaimed it and God has said it. So we have oida there in verse 9. The only thing I'm doing is just stressing that Paul is trying to say the same thing in all these different ways, hoping that it fixes in our thinking. Uses ten verses to convince us of this doctrine that he's trying to convey of who we are in Christ. Hopefully that it cement itself. And then in verse 11, now we respond to it. Okay? So what verse is Nine. It's the knowing right here. Knowing that Christ having been raised from the dead. So he's re-emphasizing that. That's the point that everything has been led to. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is never to die again. We don't have to repeat regeneration. Christ does not repeat dying on the cross. He's never to die again. Death no longer is master over him because he's resurrected. And we have access to that life is the point. That's our new identity. We don't have to sin. We have the old nature. And when we do that, it's a choice that we make. That's his emphasis. So the death of Christ is complete. And there's a final victory over death. The issue is whether or not we will live with that new identity or not. Then verse 10, for the death that he died... He died to sin once for all. So the onceness of it is kind of emphasized. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And the implication of that, he's going to develop that in verse 11, living for God. That's a new option based in the new identity. We have a new way of living. We can live in the new nature. That make sense? You follow the argument here? Logic and emphasis here? So it confirms this once for allness, if you want to call it that. This idea that what God did on the cross, once for all, that solidifies our new identity in Christ. That's not going to change, but yet we have a battle that we need to face. And that'll be chapter 7. We'll go into more detail on that. So... Another principle that we can add to our list, not only do we need the grace, and it's available, not only is this idea of death to sin a new reality for those that are in Christ, the knowledge of this truth that we've just been stressing is crucial. In other words, knowing, having it before us, a biblical perspective, and the essence of the new life is this unity of Christ. And now, number five, Victory over sin is possible. So we don't have to go back to that old way of life. It is possible in Christ. Now, this is a process. That's what sanctification is all about. It's not instantaneous. It's a process of growing. We grow in righteousness. We grow 
in uh, reflecting the image of Christ. So we've looked at five very important principles in chapter 6. Then verse 11, we're called upon to believe it. You have to know it. That's why he stressed knowing. But now we have to trust in it. Verse 11, believing in the new identity or believing of the new identity. And beginning in verse 11 through 14, even so, in other words, okay, I've got it cemented in your thinking, even so, now we need to trust this new reality. Trust, and then there is a second part to it that we could include here and apply it or act upon it, you might say. We've been stressing sanctification is by faith, remember, Faith in what God has done. So Paul is now asking us to believe everything that he said in verses 1 through 10. That that is true. That is our new reality. And then beginning in verse 12, it involves our participation. God has done the work. God has done all that is required. And now we need to respond to it in faith, first of all, and then secondly with action or a new lifestyle. And we won't get through all of those verses, but let's see how far we can get, starting with verse 11. And by the way, this is where I begin that new outline. So we've completed that second outline that I left out there. So beginning of verse 11, even so consider, consider, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's kind of a summary of verses 1 through 10. The translation may throw you off, but we've already studied this word, and I'll just kind of quickly review it. We won't look up all the verses, but this is the same word that we looked at when we were in chapter 4. Does anybody remember the word? Logizomai. Reckon. It's a mathematical term, logizomai. The term... You could even say this is where we get the word logic because it's related to thinking or logical reasoning. So it's related to logos, as you can see, logizomai at the very beginning there, logos. It's a mathematical term. It's an accounting term and in some contexts very specifically relating. So if it speak in some context outside of theological context, that you can find even some in the Bible where you have this accounting idea where something is credited to your account. We saw that in chapter 4. But basically it has this idea to consider something to be true, to regard something as real, or to reason something out as true. That's the way it's used right here. That's why it's translated, consider something. In other words, consider this new identity as a reality. It is true. Or you might even say, put it to your account in your thinking, in your bank account. And we looked these verses up. We won't look them up, but we saw them in chapter 4 to try to illustrate this usage. So it involves our reasoning. It involves our thought processes. It involves our knowing. And what Paul is saying in verse 11, since I've kept stressing this idea of knowing these truths, reckon them to be true. Or another way of stating it, he could say, believe them. 
So believing is accepting them and bringing them into your account, if you will. Theologically, the way it's used in chapter 4 is this idea to put to account or to credit to your account something spiritually, theological use. Chapter 4, God has imputed to us all that Christ has done on the cross. He put all that to our credit. That's why I use that bank vault idea, because God has imputed righteousness. It's in our account, and now we can draw on it. And this is what Paul is getting at in verse 11. Believe it, it's there. Then verse 12, draw on it. Draw from the account. So that's logizomai. So even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin. We talked about that. Because it's real. We have died. From God's perspective, it's the same as if we were on the cross. So that bondage to sin is no longer there. It has been broken. And he's saying, consider it to be true or believe it, basically. And the alternative, but alive to God, but notice again, what? In Christ Jesus, which begins to lay a little groundwork that it's possible to live in two ways. We can live in the old identity, or we can live in Christ. Two alternatives. But it begins by believing that now this second alternative is, in fact, reality. We can consider ourselves alive. That's why he makes the connection with co-crucifixion and co-resurrection. We have resurrection life available. Alive to God, but it is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 7, we tend to fall into the idea, oh, I can live this Christian life out if I just put in enough effort, if I just do enough things that will please God. And he's saying, no, it's got to be in Christ. We're going to continue looking at that. So chapter 7 is going to deal with the traps that we fall into. So that's verse 11. And why do we fail? Why, Why is it... It almost seems like this is foreign to us, even though this is a reality. Well, here's a few reasons where one commentator suggests, and I thought they were good, so I'll share them with you. A lot of Christians are unaware of this truth, this identification. They may have heard it, but it just doesn't sink in, or maybe they weren't taught, or maybe they were taught false ideas. So a lot of believers are unaware. That's why we're spending time here kind of solidify it in our thinking so we can share this with other struggling believers. They do not know. Paul says, do you not know? And in fact, they do not know. Or when he says, knowing this, well, it's foreign to them. They don't know it. And he spends time kind of re-emphasizing it over and over in verses 1 through 10. And obviously, Satan does not want us to live this new life. And if you've done any study in the scriptures, you realize that Satan tries to prevent individuals from coming into a saving relationship. When that fails, then he's going to do everything he can to derail us in terms of our attempt to please God, to glorify him, to grow in Christ. So there are a lot of hindrances that trip up the 
ordinary believer or, and even us once in a while as well. Third reason is because of what I mentioned earlier, the new birth, you can't see it. So if you're not sensing something, sometimes you forget that it's real, forget the reality behind it. And since issues of the new birth are unobservable, you can't necessarily test it, you can't see it. It's inward, it's invisible. The baptism, we're stressing that baptism of the Holy Spirit, you you don't see that. The water baptism is a visible public display to proclaim that this has happened to me inwardly. You don't see it, maybe. You don't even see the evidence of it until you grow some in Christ. So it's unobservable. So we tend to think in terms of that that I can touch and see. I can see the temptation, not the temptation, but the incitement. In other words, something is very attractive to me, and I can see it, I observe it, and desire it, and all that goes into the temptation, but that clouds my thinking in terms of what is unobservable. And uh, we all battle with sin, and we get overwhelmed sometimes as well with certain temptations in terms of our inclinations. Mary Lee. I see this sort of as the failure is because of the ruts. I mean, we all know ruts here in New Mexico. Right. And you have well-established ruts. Yes. And it's very difficult, especially when you're out where the ruts are very, very obvious. It's very difficult to not drive in the ruts. Yes. And it simply takes the Holy Spirit encouraging us to not drive in those ruts right. to move along because the ruts the rut that's what I see the sin being our life is just all these ruts that have been worn in and so we have to wear in a new pattern of yes. ruts in our life. New, uh, new ruts. <laughs> holy ruts. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So that we're not living because those old patterns are so ingrained in what we do that that they come naturally. Exactly. And that's the battle. That's the battle with sin. It comes naturally. Using a computer analogy, uh, we call that kind of a default. You have your computer set for a certain font, and when you type in on a Word document, font that you've got set is what comes out. If you want a different one, you have to change the font. So we live in a default old nature mode, you might say, So that's why quiet time, that's why early prayer. Uh, It's not we do these things to please God. We do these things because we need these things to remind us of our new identity because we have to get out of that default position or out of the rut, as Mary Lee puts it, and that's the battle. So we'll talk some more about that when we get to chapter. Everybody, we're surrounded by that kind of thing. That's right. Stinking thinking. According to, according to Linda. So there's a battle there. Then uh, part of this application is first verse 11, believing the new identity, and then 12 to 14, appropriating the new identity. So sanctification is by faith, believing in what God has done, considering it true. But secondly, now we have three more, and we won't get through all of them, in fact... Let's take a quick look at the first one, and then we'll pick up there uh, next week. But now we appropriate that new idea. In other words, here's a command to do something. 
It's based on what God has already done. So it involves God and his supernatural enablement, but it also involves our cooperation or our involvement. That's why a lot of Christians don't live the Christian life. They live as Christians in the flesh. That's not the Christian life. So 12 to 13 is one sentence. And let's see if you can pick out the independent clause and or clauses. Anyone want to pick out the first one? Okay, I would include the therefore. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Very good, even though there's no comma there. You can put one there. That's the first independent clause. That's the second one, verse 13, right, Connie? Mm -hmm. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, colon. So this one has two independent clauses. What else do we have? But, so we have an alternative. Present yourselves to God as, let's see, those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So we have three independent clauses. It's not real complicated. This is what's called a compound sentence. Three independent clauses, and all three of them are what kind of clauses? Imperatives. There are three. There's your three. Here's your three imperatives. Do not let sin reign. So that, this is the heart of this sentence. Three things. Three commands. Do not let sin reign. Secondly, do not go on presenting, etc., etc. That's the verb. I include the not in there, even though it's a separate word that negates it. So the second imperative, do not go on presenting something. And then you have the alternative, and the verb is present. Another imperative, another command. See what, how we break this down? So we have three commands. After the first one, so here's your four imperatives. The first one, trust, consider, or believe that verses 1 through 10 is true. And in believing, now we know that this resurrection power doesn't come from us. We don't pull up our bootstraps and try and live the Christian life. God has provided what we need to be able to live the Christian life. Believe it. We have a new identity. We don't have to live in that old way of living. Believe it. There's a new alternative. Believe it. And now we do three other things. Therefore, do not let sin reign because there's this tendency within us to be brought back into that old way of living, that old alternative. So what it's encouraging here, in a very broad sense, without specifics, it's just saying, take the steps that you need to keep from going back into that old way of bondage. And I'll show you this word next time, but the word reign there is the one that we've already seen in chapter 5. It has the idea of ruling under a dictator. Don't put yourself under dictatorship anymore. You've been freed from a dictator. The reign, it has this idea of ruling like in a kingdom. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness don't get entrapped back into that reign. 
and we'll look at this some more. And now, in in the process of that, in the specific areas, do not go on presenting the members of your body. Remember the body of sin? Members of your body, the temptations that we take in from the eyes, the inclinations of the flesh, the desires that well up within us in terms of that old way of living. Don't put yourself in a position where now you're more tempted or now you're more inclined to go in that direction. Stay away from some of those things. But always in the Bible, there's never an an exhortation to stop doing something without an alternative. So we have the alternative in the last part of verse 13. Instead, make conscious efforts, and we'll look at some examples of how to do this, of presenting yourself to God as those alive from the dead. In other words, in your new identity, who we are in Christ and your members, in other words, the same members that are inclined to sin, now we can present them in an alternative way and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, replace, you could even say replace old habits, old ruts, using Mary Lee's analogy, Replace those old ruts with new pavements. <laughs> new, even new ruts. Because even I new ruts. Yeah. My mom, when yeah. she had had a stroke and she couldn't remember anything, but the the new rut, the rut she had in Christ held her, right, and, and formed her a basis for living. When you'd say she, otherwise, I mean, she, right. had, she wouldn't get angry. She, you know, she was yeah. in Christ. Was, in Christ, she had she had. Develop some new runs. New runs. Yeah. Okay. So you have a negative or two negatives that we replace with a positive. And by the way, in biblical counseling, that's one of the things that is stressed. You always have to replace old habits with new actions or new habits. Well, that's a good place to kind of introduce what we'll do next week, and we'll look in that look at these in more detail next time with some perhaps good examples. Living the Christian life means living in our new identity. That's the Christian life. It's a resurrection life. Who wants to close for us? You want to do it? Thank you, Father. Giving us the opportunity to hear your word. And your word is not 